Hey listeners, Adam O'Donnell here with Zendesk. We have a special interview with the co-founder of Shift, publicly traded company listed on the NASDAQ. They've raised over $500 million. He shares how they actually hit product market fit in the early days, but ended up having to stop that product and start a new one to get to the next level of scale. The original idea was to acquire cars from sellers, but not actually take physical possession of those things. Instead, we wanted to like empower a seller of a car to have all the all of the resources that a dealer would have, but be able to do it themselves. We discovered that at least in the Bay Area, hey, um, most people were like, I love this whole inspection report and the, the ability to do financing, but you know what would be really nice is if you just take the car and sell it for me. So they're learning, taking action, iterating. In the Bay Area, and LA, this was working. But the question was, would this scale to the rest of the world? The team went out and did a bunch of really insightful user research and discovered that like, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people who want to consign their car, but that's only like 20% of the market. The other 80% kind of need the money from that thing to buy the next thing. And so we, we thought we had this product market fit and we were growing and had this thing, but then we started kind of hitting a wall we need to re start rethinking the product. And uh, the team came to the conclusion, like actually what we need to do is go out and get a major financing line and start buying the cars and paying people upfront for these cars, what we call advanced funds, uh, advancing people the money on their car so that they could afford to go buy a new car. And that would be like a market opening. And, and, and bit by bit, we discovered that, you know, as you go down that path, we actually ended up in a very different business than we originally were in. And, and that is we have to finance and take asset risk on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of vehicles. We have to store those, repair them, maintain them and manage them. That's like a whole asset management program that like in the initial phase, we hadn't been in at all, but that's what was needed to grow because we tapped out the market for the thing that we were doing. How easy would it have been for them to say, hey, we have a good business here. Let's just stop now. Or we tried everything we can. There's just no other way to make this Thing work. They went and talked to customers and did in-depth user research, and they were not afraid to burn the ships and completely change their business to grow and scale. Hey, welcome to Sit Down Startup Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Adam O'Donnell, former founder and VC. I now work at Zendesk for Startups, where we offer six months free use of Zendesk for qualified high-growth companies. There's actually a story behind these ones in particular. This thing has shift written on it, and um, for years, as we were building the company, we had to be super lean. And so we always wanted to have like cool swag and stuff like that in San Francisco kind of kind of vibe. But we um, we kind of cut back and we're like, hey, we're not going to be able to do like, you know, premium brands and stuff because we're in, we're in e-commerce and, and this is a shift and we're, we're, we're selling cars and we're trying to stay lean and like pass everything on to customers, low price, you know, kind of making sure that we were uh, delivering for our, our customers. And so we, we couldn't really invest in things like that. But then when we took the company public, my co-founder and I um, kind of personally funded buying um, Arcteryx uh, article. Everybody got to choose like you want a vest or a jacket or whatnot um, with the, the name of the company. And then the, um, the our, our new stock ticker on the logo, just to say thank you to the team that had been there all the way through to, to, to taking it public. And we were, we were really excited about that. So the, uh, I st still wear the, the little Arcteryx thing that we got for the for the whole team is like a, uh, as a memento and kind of a, a milestone of success. Thank you so much for being on Sit Down Startup, where I'm excited to hear your story with Shift, uh, the ups and downs, but really some of the growth things that you did that helped you get to that, to help eventually build a publicly traded company. Uh, so could you just kind of go back to the timeline? When did you first start the company? So the original idea was around I think something like 2013, um, my co-founder George and I had done a previous company together uh, called Tax the Magic. That's a whole other story unto itself. But the um, idea was we wanted to do another company and we would get together on like Sunday evenings to do like these riff sessions 
on what would be what would be the next idea and we came up with a bunch of ideas and then kind of narrowed down to two and then picked one and, and ran with it um so that's when the initial thing happened there was it would started out really with kind of exploration and sort of uh research and experimenting and <clears throat> the classic research and development phase it was very much the research phase uh and uh george was leading a lot of that i think first started selling cars in like 20 14 2015 kind of time frame uh but didn't really start growing until late 2015 is when we started really uh really accelerating the total volume and team size etc very interesting i'm really excited to hear this story but could you tell us that ideation conversation that you and your co-founder were having together in those early days like how wide was the option or how yeah. narrow was it it was it was pretty wide um we, we were thinking about all kinds of different stuff uh, and that we, we, we narrowed down to, um, I can't even remember all the, all the crazy ideas, uh, that, that we'd come up with, but, uh, we narrowed down to, to two of them. And, um, one was, uh, the idea of quote, we, we labeled it cruise.com. The idea was to bring e-commerce to, uh, selling, um, cruise line bookings, uh, which is not a bad idea. I think there's an interesting idea there. Um, the idea was that that part of the travel segment had not had been underinvested in, et cetera. Um, my my co-founder came up with that. He, he had a lot of knowledge on the travel industry and had, had done a bunch of stuff in online travel. <clears throat> and then the idea that I'd come up with was, hey, uh, I kind of think that auto car selling and buying was broken. And in fact, he and I had both personally had experiences that it just went kind of sideways <laughs> and were weird in the, in the auto buying and selling and, and had actually discovered that about 45% of all the used cars that sell don't go through an actual dealer, that it's like private party, peer to peer. And, and so one of the things that we were, we were contemplating was um, the, this, this idea of like Craigslist killers, where it's like there's, there's transactions happening and things that people are doing that could be made much better and, and be like a managed marketplace. We've done a, a marketplace in the past around ground travel. And uh, we narrowed in on this idea of trying to make the selling of your car and the buying of a car from another individual a great experience. Like that was the that was the the thing that we really wanted to make happen. It's a big important purchase, and it's a broken experience. Like almost nobody says, "Boy, used car dealer, uh, love those guys." And so um, what we uh, and, and the fact that almost half of all the transactions don't go through the car dealers was a sign that that thing is is, is pretty broken. And so what we, uh, what we narrowed down to was those two ideas and uh, decided to go with, with, with the car one. Um, it, among other things, for me personally, I, I had trouble getting passionate about the cruise thing, but the, the car thing, I was like, wow, that's like a big deal for a lot of people. It's meaningful. And eventually we kind of developed this, this phrase of like, friends don't let friends buy new cars because it's like a trap. Uh, and you, you, you basically get taken advantage of, even if you've won the negotiation, you still walk out with a car or an item that is worth tens of thousands that's depreciating like two or $3,000 a second you drive it off the lot. And we're like, that is a total trap and that is not cool. Um, and we want to create an environment and an experience with technology that would uh, make this thing, this very important transaction, both easy and trustworthy. And so that, that, that's what we got passionate about and went after at the outset. That's amazing to consider those two different things. You weren't from the auto industry. You weren't from the cruise industry, but yet you're confident enough and humble enough to think that there'd be a way to do this. Like, and you'd be the, the founders to do it. Yeah. The, uh, the basic idea was, um, Hey, let's find an area where there something that matters that actually matters in people's everyday lives. Um, you know, I, I worked at uh, Capital One Financial for a while, and we were in a lot of ways inventing this concept of fintech 
uh, and building out one of the biggest fintech operations uh, in, in in the country, if not the world. And and people would oftentimes say, "Hey, you know, we're not a tech company. We don't. We're not like a photo sharing app." I'm like, "No, but this stuff matters. Like, people's money matters. The cars matter." And that's been a theme that I've done. Is um, we've always done sort of online to offline um, over over the journey. Uh, things that things that are digitally driven or technology oriented, but actually have manifestation or come to reality in the real world. And something about that has always spoken to me that, that there's something about making an actual substantive material difference <laughs> in someone's mm. life and day to day life. And so that was the big that was the big thing is like, what what is it that will uh, be be real and have an impact, but at the same time uh, could be transformed? With, with digital technology. Now you might say, whoa, like, what are you doing going and becoming like a used car dealer? Like I never grew up thinking, boy, I'm gonna become a used car dealer. I also never grew up and thought, well, I'm gonna be like a taxi operator. And in fact, in, in 2007, we were building Java apps for Blackberries. So you could push a button and have a taxi come pick you up. You might find that familiar. You're like, hey, I've heard of that. I jokingly say that we built like Netscape with the Uber space uh, in Taxi Magic. We went to like, you know, 30 cities. You could, and you know, we built out a big system where you could do the thing. And, and at the outset, people were like, you're crazy. Like, what do you you doing getting into this like taxi place that's like a reviled um industry like who wants to be a taxi operator and i um i kind of said well you know the thing is it's if it's reviled that's a sign that it's broken because everybody needs a taxi um and by and large lots of people uh, hundreds of millions of people need cars you got to get from here to there but if you say that the way you get the thing either getting the taxi or, or, or buying a car is is reviled and broken and like ooh, who would want to touch that that is a prime example of the thing that can be transformed. And then, you know, very, very soon thereafter, this is 2007, I think by 2011, 2012, everybody's like, well, micro mobility and like mobility, it's the coolest thing ever. And you're like, yeah, you go to the thing that's massively not cool because that's how you make it cool is you transform it and, and you make it better. Uh, the fact that it's not cool is the sign that there's an opportunity and that you ought to be working there. Mm, I love that. It's almost this uh, barrier to entry. That's one of the easier barriers to break through. You just have to to step over the line. You don't have to actually do anything, but it, it's, it does create a lot of, it stops a lot of smart people from jumping into it just off the cuff. I, yeah. I, I, I love that. Well, how big are you now? Um, I'm about 5'11". I'm kidding. <laughs> you, you mean, Adam, you're talking about Shift? How big is Shift what? now? Yeah. <laughs> so Shift is, is now a public company. Um, uh, we, I think we, we, so I have to be careful about, you know, sharing numbers, obviously everything comes out, uh, in the, in the quarterlies, but, uh, last year did about 630 million in revenue. I, I think give or take is kind of the velocity that the, that the company was at. So, um, grew substantially. Uh, I think we three X from 2021 to 2022 or 2020 to 2021, uh, wow. did, did a ton of growth. And there's a lot of learning from that, that, that kind of, uh, velocity, and journey. So uh, selling cars uh, across the nation. So in, in all 50 states, uh, including have sold cars in Hawaii, if you can believe it, like people would buy online and we'd ship the car over. Um, and and that, that, that's that's a thing. So um, sort of sort of a national, national footprint. And eventually, you know, we can talk about this in terms of how you think about um, product development as well as user acquisition. But over the, over the story or the, the journey, I noticed that, um, the thing that you do at the outset will get you to a certain level of growth, but at a certain point, you usually have to have discontinuous change mm -hmm. to get to that next level. And there's like step levels, uh, you know, do, doing things like all digital uh, marketing and growth and, and, and advertising, but then needing to go over to like a you know, TV out of home 360 uh, marketing campaign after you go beyond what say digital 
could reach um, those discontinuous mm-hmm. things. And so we, we, we did a lot around like thinking about first, we're like, hey, we're gonna be very technology oriented. And then we're like, well, actually we need to mature into being a brand and building out a proper brand. And the, you don't do that right away, but you, you, you get from here to there over time. And so the, the one key learning I, I think that uh, hit me was in growing, um, you gotta optimize and do the thing that makes sense at this stage. It takes you to that next level, but recognize that what just got you to that next level probably is not gonna be the thing that will take you to the following level. And so you have to be willing to take on capabilities, team um, team talent and uh, strategies and approaches that you might not have before because it actually gets harder and harder to squeeze more and more juice out of the same thing. You kind of have to have new things uh, in order in order to, to accelerate to the next level. So that, that's, that's sort of the high level there. That makes a lot of sense. You have to keep changing those phases. Let's just go back to one of the first phases that you had. So could you take us into a conversation around a growth strategy or something that you did that worked really well? I think one of the, one of the, like a big, and I'll give an example of a thing. It's easy to come up with like a, Hey, we did TV advertising and things started growing fast. Like that happens. But the more interesting story uh, is when you, you realize that you've got a product market fit that actually is limited and isn't going to be scalable. Um, so one of the stories is around the way that um, we acquired cars. And this happens in kind of three phases. The original idea was to uh, acquire cars from sellers, um, but not actually take physical possession of those things. Instead, we wanted to like empower a seller of a car to have all the all of the resources that a dealer would have, but be able to do it themselves. Um, and the team was doing this uh, in, in in San Francisco Bay Area. And the original original concept was, hey, let's create like an inspection report. Someone could like take their car to a a certified mechanic, get the inspection report and then use the inspection report. And we would bring like financing capabilities so somebody could borrow in order to not have to like, you know, pay $10,000 out of pocket. That's like, most people don't walk around with like $10,000, $20,000 in their pocket. So we were like, let's create all those, those capabilities was the original idea. And, and the team was doing that. And they pretty quickly discovered that at least in the Bay Area, hey, um, most people were like, I love this whole inspection report and the, the ability to do financing. But you know, what'd be really nice is if you just take the car and sell it for me. Mm. Um, and so it turned out that in that particular sample of users, what people wanted was convenience. Uh, and so what the team did was like say, okay, well, we'll start taking the car. And originally um, there was like parking it on the street around like the Castro and, and, and like not having anywhere to put these things and like moving them around because there's like limited parking, et cetera. So super scrappy early stage, um, you know, minimal, minimal tech, just sort of figuring the thing out. Uh, and, and it eventually you know, that, that began particularly in the barrier to, to scale. People like this idea of like, take the car. And then it turned out he had to do repairs on it. You're like, oh boy, reconditioning. So you had to like hire mechanics and um, have them, uh, you know, NSC certified mechanics doing proper inspections and work on the thing. And then negotiate with the seller to be able to figure out what repairs to do. And, and bit by bit, it kind of ratcheted up and up and up in this whole thing that became a consignment offering. Hey, we'll give you a guaranteed price um, and for that guaranteed price, we'll then take the car, we'll sell it. If it sells for more, we'll, we'll share the upside. Uh, if it sells for less, you get the guaranteed price. And that, that product offering uh, scaled to a certain extent. You know, that, that was actually really popular in the Bay Area. But then as we started opening up other locations like Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, uh, San Diego, et cetera, other places up and down the West Coast initially, um, the user research, the team went out and did a bunch of really insightful user research and discovered that like, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people who want to consign their car, but that's only like 20% of the market. The other 80% are 
kind of need the money from that thing to buy the next thing. And so we, we thought we had this product market fit and we were growing and had this thing, but then we started kind of hitting a wall and it, it, you know, ultimately a marketplace can be supply or demand constraint. In this case, it's a, it's a, it's a supply constraint of like, well, you, you can't sell and uh, transact more cars if you don't have more cars. It's kind of a, a basic law of physics. And so what we began realizing is we needed to re start rethinking the product. And uh, the team came to the conclusion, like, actually, what we need to do is go out and get a major financing line and start buying the cars and paying people up front for these cars, what we call advanced funds, uh, advancing people the money on their car so that they could afford to go buy a new car. And that would be like a market opening. And, and, and bit by bit, we discovered that, you know, as you go down that path, we actually ended up in a very different business than we originally were in because we were in this consignment business where we weren't taking asset risk. And then suddenly we were like, wait a minute, in order to meet the user need, we have to do something very differently. And, and that is we have to finance and take asset risk on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of vehicles. We have to store those, um, repair them, maintain them and, and, and manage them. That's like a whole asset management program that like in the initial phase, we hadn't been in at all, but that's what was needed to grow because we'd tapped out the market for the thing that we were doing. And um, that was... I think a really instructive startup example. And the reason was as a startup, like with, you know, you're, you're a small startup with like 20, 50 people, nobody's going to give you a, um, uh, you know, a hundred million dollar line to go buy and sell cars, for example. Nobody's going to do that. Like it's, it's just really hard to get that debt financing and get somebody to take that kind of risk on you. Banks won't uh, do that. And so having bootstrapped and learned our way forward with a consignment model, but then having built the algorithms, the learning to be able to know what's going to sell, what's not going to sell, what's going to clear in a marketplace and what's not, was not the answer, but the beginnings of being able to build an asset management model, essentially a, a vehicle clearing um, price algorithm and uh, start doing the data science around what's it going to take to identify whether or not a thing is going to be good or not. And that data was really critical, but you couldn't get the data without doing the first thing. So in a weird way, we had to be in one business at the outset, grow, realize that that had limitations, but we couldn't have been in the second business if we hadn't been in the first business in the first place. And so that's what I mean when I say, sometimes the thing that you do to grow at the next stage is not literally the same as what you do at the next stage. But the, the virtue of the second thing was, even though there was more risk, there was also less operational complexity. So there was mm -hmm. simplification. And we had this moment of being tempted to try and do both simultaneously. Hey, like mm. hey, can we cover 100% of the market, the 20% that want consignment and the 80% that don't. And, and this is where we had to have real rigor as a team. And, and particularly the, the, the engineering team looked at that and said, hey, we can do both, but there's just a ton of complexity at maintaining and, um, and trying to not just maintain, but develop and continue investing in two separate product lines simultaneously. And so we had to make the very difficult call uh, Adam, which was, we're actually going to shut down the, what was our core business in favor of launching essentially a new business because that second new business was larger. And again, it was a business we couldn't have gotten into if we hadn't done the first thing. So we just mm -hmm. didn't have the um, track record or access to capital that we would have needed. But uh, the, the, the combination of being able to be willing to do something new and different and even bet the whole company on it sometimes is what's required because you can't take on so much complexity of doing the old thing and continuing the old thing. You got to let that thing go and do the new thing. That is, you had to burn the ships. 
exactly that's the the the, the explore um in the in the new world so to speak analogy of like we will burn the ships and we're gonna go figure this thing out because we, we can't go back we can't go back and i that is that is an amazing story and i, I feel like there's got to be a lot of found, there's a lot of founders right now who are in that fork in the road kind of thing and they're they're making the easy decision of let's just do both because it, it's safer like it's been, it's what's got us here. Like you're looking at the revenue that you have in the company so far, you're looking at the things that you put in your pitch deck to, to raise the rounds. And all of those things are based on the previous model. And, and yet you had the confidence to go through what I, yeah, that's, that is an amazing story. And there's, um, I would say the, the, how you do that is important. It's not just a matter mm. of like, okay, we're doing the new thing and we're done. Um, there, there is inevitably a time frame when you will have to do both. Um, and ideally you do it in a way that allows you to pressure test and make sure that the new thing can work before you bet hundred percent on it. Like you, you kind of want to discover that like, before you burn the boats, you're not on a tiny Island, <laughs> like, you know, like, like make sure that you're, you're, you actually have landed in a place that is, has, has enough, enough exploring to do. Um, so there is, there is some, some legitimacy to the, to the, you're going to have to do both for a while, but in order to mm-hmm. scale, and this comes back to growth. Uh, very much came to the conclusion that it was going to be very difficult for the team to scale trying to do too much all at once. Like simplicity becomes an incredibly important thing in scaling. And so in a way you mitigate risk by doing your old thing while you're doing the new thing, but you're also gating your ability to grow because Mm. trying to carry that, that, that old business while doing the new thing is, is hard now. and, And granted, like not everybody does this elegantly. We all remember the quickster days of like Netflix where like, we're not going to do DVDs anymore. And then like, it's just like a disaster. So sometimes you got it. You, you have to do that elegantly. It's not just a, a simple burn the boats kind of thing. Like there's a, there's an art to how you go about uh, letting go of the old and, and focusing on, on the new for simplicity. That is good. Simplicity is essential to scaling, but yet the transition matters. And it's not just a rip, rip out immediately. It's be intentional about phasing that down to keep the customer trust and keep up the brand trust and handle it the right way, but also be intentional about proving that you're on the right Island and that you're not on, that you are on North America and not a small Caribbean Island. <laughs> that, that <laughs> is, uh, that's the deal. And that is the hardest moment actually is making that decision to mm-hmm. um, make the change and mm-hmm. then to, to, to sunset or shut down the old thing and, and, and then saying, Hey, how much, how much information, how much signal is enough? to be able to make that call that, that believe it or not, that pivot moment is, is, I think that's why I give the example is one of the hardest and, and most challenging for uh, a team and, and the leaders to go to. I have no doubt. Well, th- just the last question uh, real quick is what is your superpower? And I can't, I think it's kind of dovetails cause I could, I could guess a couple, but what is your superpower as a founder? I I'd like to think, you know, this is, this is, this is a, a question of self-awareness actually really. <laughs> um, uh, I'd like to think my superpower is being able to envision uh, a new world in a new way, see a thing that's just not not what it could be, and imagine and see what it what it could be, and and, and imagine a world that isn't, but that, that that could be. But then be able to have bring a team along with me on that one. I'd I'd love to believe that uh, being able to articulate that for the team so that people can see it, and mm. therefore people who are a lot smarter and more capable than I am can can make that thing happen <laughs> because. Uh, part of, uh, I, I believe, part of being a, a company, and this is what's really critical, particularly at the early phase, is realizing that uh, as a leader and setting the vision, it's really critical to create that context, mm. but that um, there's a temptation to try and do it all yourself. Uh, and that's necessary at the very beginning. Like when you're mm-hmm. first founding, like you're it, um, you know, you're, it's, it's very small and you just got to do it. 
And, and this comes to the whole, the thing that got you there might not get you to the next level is being able to surround yourself and build out the company with a group of people who are just way better than you at doing a whole lot of other things. And most things, in fact, uh, ideally everything. And so that was something that I, um, that, that if, if I had a, a, an Achilles heel, my superpower is envisioning that future. My Achilles heel is either failing to articulate that for the team or, mm. uh, you know, not getting um, the, the uh, people who are way better at it than I am set up with the context and the runway fast enough to be able to go and make the thing real. Uh, that, I think that's a, that was a key learning for me as well. Uh, and that, that's something that I think a lot of founders do struggle with because you have to carry and, you know, you work, you work in the business for so long, um, mm. being able to realize that you become the bottleneck and you've got to be able to step back and scale your team is, is a, is a really critical thing. And that mm. definitely, definitely happens by series B, uh, if not right away in the A. Man, Toby, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Well, Adam, I appreciate you having me on. It was fun to get a chance to, to chat and reflect with you. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Google. If you want to learn more about Zendesk for Startups and our free offer, please check out our website at zendesk.com startups.